Well, good morning, Chapel Roswell. How are you guys doing this dreary, rainy Sunday morning? It's good to be in worship with each and every one of you. My name is Joe McKechnie, and I'm just so honored to be here with you guys this morning. Now, I know that for some of you, school is about to start. Maybe for some of you, school has already started. And when I mention the words back to school, a lot of young people are cringing, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't want to go back to school. Meanwhile, your parents are saying, yes, yes, the kids are going back. Here's what I want to do. I want to have a special back-to-school prayer for you guys and with you guys this morning. So here's the deal. If you are a teacher or you're an educator or you work at the school, I'd like you to stand real quickly this morning. We've got some of you here. Thank you, guys. Now stay, stay standing. Okay, stay, stay standing. If you're a student who's going back to school this week, I invite you to stand now. Now, if you're a student who doesn't want to go back to school, you can sit down. No, no, actually, no, just stay up straight. We don't, want to, we don't want to give them that option this morning. Okay, if you're a parent of someone who's going back to school, I want you to stand this morning. That's a lot of us, man. All right, I'm going to ask that you guys just bow your head. Let's pray together, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to you with grateful hearts this morning. As we get set for another season of our lives, we remember the mighty ways in which you are at work the abundance of blessings that you have poured out upon our lives. Lord God, we are mindful of the fact that you are a God of new seasons and fresh beginnings. Lord, we ask you to pour down your blessing upon our children as they embark on another school year. Provide comfort to parents as they see their kids head off to another year. We thank you, Lord, for those individuals who are called to be teachers, and we ask for your guidance upon them as they provide education and example to our young people. May you affirm and encourage them. Lord God, we thank you for those who are at help in the process of education, all school employees. We thank you for their dedication and their service, their commitment and their calling. We lift up this blessing to them. May they remember the source of power that is always with us. Father God, whether we are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles, you provide each of us with fresh opportunity to impact young lives. May we take full advantage of the fact that we can influence those around us. Lord God, may, be, may we be reminded of the fact that we are filled with your Holy Spirit who leads us and prompts us. May those around us see your power and presence in us and may they be drawn closer to you by our words and our actions. And finally, God, may we be people who look for and notice and appreciate your blessings on all that we face and all that we do. Lord God, we love you so much. And we thank you for first loving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated, guys. Thank you so much. Now, I want to take you back to 1964. The United States was all set to prepare for the British invasion. British invasion started with what British group? Just shout it out. Yeah, the Beatles. Okay, the Beatles started off the British invasion. Now, they seem to be like this overnight success. They, they came to the U.S., they performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, and the next thing you know, Beatlemania is sweeping the country. In late January of the year 1964, the Beatles had their first number one song. It was their very first song to chart in the U.S. Who knows what it was? I Want to Hold Your Hand, their first song. On February 9th, just a month later of 1964, the Beatles appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. 45% of all Americans were tuned in to see them play. 
Wow, that's amazing. Beatlemania was sweeping the countries, and the Beatles' success opened up a lot of doors for other British music groups as well. And so it seems like the British invasion, and certainly Beatlemania, was like this overnight success. But the truth is, it wasn't. You see, it had been in the works for a long, long time. Paul McCartney and John Lennon, in fact, started playing together in 1957, seven years before the Beatle invasion. They were an unknown high school band until they met a guy who was recruiting bands to, to play in Hamburg, Germany. So they decided to travel to Germany, and they played at some local clubs. It was purely by accident that they met this man who invited them to play. Truth is, they weren't paid very much. The, the acoustics in these bars where they played was, was terrible. The crowds were rowdy. But their time in Hamburg was incredibly influential. Why? Because they had to play and they had to play a lot. They would perform almost every night of the week, four or five hours per show. On their first stint in Hamburg, the Beatles played 106 concerts. They would return four more times as they honed their skills and they gained tons of experience. Nonstop hours of playing and playing and playing yet some more. It forced them to get better. As the Beatles grew in skill, audiences started to demand more of their performances. In 1962, they were playing eight hours of music each and every night, seven nights per week. And so in 1964, by the time they kind of burst onto the international music scene, the Beatles had already played more than 1,200 concerts together. By way of comparison, most groups in their entire careers don't play 1,200 concerts. By comparison, Elvis, he played 1,800 concerts in his entire career. The Beatles played 1,200 before they even came to America. They would become the best-known bands in the entire world. But their success was a long time coming. They put in a lot of hard work, a lot of preparation. Like I said, a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. In many cases, we often refer to ourselves as followers of Jesus, as trying to win God's good graces by our hard work. Many assume that it's our hard work that, that, that garners the blessings of our Heavenly Father. But, but you see, that goes totally against the grain of Scripture, certainly against the grain of the Gospel. So this morning, I'm going to take you back to the book of Titus. It's a very short book, kind of towards the back of the New Testament. One of the shortest books in the Bible, written by Paul to a friend named Titus. Now, Paul wrote almost most of the, the New Testament... His books actually were letters. He would write letters to churches. He would write letters to individuals. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so in the Bible, it's kind of orchestrated and, and kind of organized this way. Paul's letters to the churches are first. They're not written in any sort of order there. It's really based on the length. The, the longest book, Romans, is first, and it kind of goes on from there. So he wrote to several churches, the, the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, for example. And then after the letters to the churches, we see Paul's letters to individuals, Timothy, Philemon, and Titus, which is where we land this morning. Who is Titus? Titus was converted to Christianity by Paul on one of his missionary trips. He became Paul's representatives on the, representative on the Isle of Crete. Paul wrote this letter to give uh, Titus some instructions on how to manage the church, how to oversee the Christians in Crete. 
You see, Crete was a, a sinful place, a hodgepodge of, of different religions and different theologies and different people from all over the place. So Paul was writing to them to help them combat a lot of false teaching that they were experiencing on the Isle of Crete. Paul wanted them to understand the concept of grace. That was the central theme of the teaching of Jesus, this concept of grace. Titus, the book, has only three chapters. Like I said, one of the shortest books in all of the Bible. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Let's start off with verse 5. He, okay, God, saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, there's a phrase that we hear twice. What might that be? Everyone's looking up like, what do you say? I've got to wake up now. He saved us. We see that twice in this passage. He saved us. Remember the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. And the word saved in Greek is the word sozo. The word sozo. Turn to your neighbor and say sozo. That's really well done. You guys are now speaking Greek. Congratulations on that. The word sozo refers to someone who is saved, someone who is plucked out of a situation involving great danger. It's powerful to think about. In the book of Matthew, chapter 8, 25, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee when a fierce storm suddenly threatened their safety. The disciples cried out to Jesus, save us. Again, that's the Greek word what? Sozo. Well done. It's also interesting to note in the New Testament, in Greek, the word sozo not only refers to salvation, it also is the same word from which we get healing. So you read the Greek word sozo when somebody is healed, and you read the Greek word sozo when someone is saved. That's pretty powerful. You see, we have been saved according to the gospel, not because of what we have done, Okay, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. That's the message of the gospel. You've heard me say before, the, the word gospel in Greek means the good news. Not only just good news, but it means like the greatest news of all time. That's the message, that's the power of the gospel. That despite, despite my sin, God had a rescue plan in mind. Through Jesus, God had a rescue plan for you and you and you and you and you guys up there. God has a rescue plan for those who don't yet know him. So let's jump ahead to verse 7 in the third chapter of Titus. Having been justified by God's grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The word justify, you've heard me say before, means to be made right. We are made right. How? By our hard work? No, it says by God's grace. Scripture even tells us that not, not only did God make us right, okay, God makes us right. That in itself is incredibly powerful stuff. But it says that God has allowed us, has invited us to be heirs. That means to be a part of his internal inward family. How awesome is that? Not only did Jesus save me from my sin... But God has invited me to be a part of his family. How awesome is that? God has invited you to be a part of his family. Now, I know that Chapel Ross, we're not really a, a happy, clappy kind of church. But, but, but the truth is, if anything ever deserves an amen, it would be this. Okay, let's, let's try this, okay? 
Not only did Jesus save me from my sin and shame, but God has invited me to be a part of his family. Amen. That's good stuff. Maybe you are a happy, clappy church after all. Look at that. Now, through Paul's writing, uh, the scripture is declaring that our salvation comes about not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. Last week, I was having a fun theological conversation with three other pastors from around the country, from different Christian denominations, and we were talking about our specific congregations. I was talking about you guys. And each of us asked the question, what do you like the most about your faith tradition, about your church, about your denomination, about the people with whom and for whom you are in ministry? Uh, And I thought about that. What do I truly cherish about this congregation? What do I truly cherish about my opportunity to be in ministry here? It's one word, short and sweet. That word is grace. Grace is that undeserved, unmerited, life-changing, and life-saving gift from God. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And yet God freely grants it to you and to me. It's interesting to note that no other religion in the world offers grace. You see, not only is grace a big deal according to Scripture, according to the gospel, it is the big deal that as followers of God... God's grace is the central component, the biggest theme of our faith. You've heard me say before that there are three theological truths. Three theological truths. The Jewish people don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Protestants don't recognize the Pope as the head of the church. And Baptists don't recognize each other in the liquor store. But uh, despite all of that, it'll... So it'll take a while, okay? No, no. No, People clapped at that. That's not right. That's just not right at all. Man. Because if I hurry up, we're going to beat the Baptist to lunch this morning. Now, that might be worthwhile. Now, we recognize the fact that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to a relationship with God. It's through Christ that you and I are made new. The old life is gone. The new one has begun. And that's great news because this new life is not contingent upon us working our way into God's good graces, whether it's about God's grace offered to you and to me. You see, throughout the ages, religion has been about humankind reaching up into heavens for some higher power. But you see, being a follower of Jesus is different. It's not about us reaching up into heavens to find God. It's about a loving God reaching down into a hurting world to rescue you and to rescue me. Psalm 18:19 says, God brought us out of a place of danger. God rescues us because God delights in us. Well, that's pretty powerful stuff. Did you know that God delights in you according to Scripture? Wow. In a bookstore, the self-help section is one of the biggest sections of all. And sometimes we view our faith as self-help. We aim for behavior modification so that we can be better Christian people. But you see, that's not the gospel. In fact, it's kind of backwards. A life with Christ is not self-help, it's God-help. God-help is the message that we find in the gospel. It's Jesus who brings about the grace that we need. It's not about ourselves. That truthfully, I can't do enough good things, I can't think the right way enough 
to get into a right relationship with God. Now, Scripture does talk about us bearing fruit. That's a term you find a lot in the New Testament. For example, if you had a cherry tree, what kind of fruit would you find on the cherry tree? You'd find cherries. And what would you find on an orange tree? You would find oranges. And Jesus talks about a life in Christ displaying certain attributes of Jesus. You see, once we're people of faith, our actions and our attitudes and our reactions are going to change. But it's not those good works that save us. It's those good works that come about because Christ has saved us. Many people often refer to to karma. It's what comes back to us. If you do bad things, you'll encounter bad things. But Scripture does refer to a person reaping what he or she sows. But, But you see, karma isn't the message of the gospel. In fact, it's the complete opposite. After all, the Scripture says, we are saved while we are still sinners. You see, through Jesus, and this is powerful stuff, grace interrupts the spiritual consequences of our actions. No longer do we have to depend on our own behavior because the truth is we can't rely on our own behavior. Just trust me, I've tried to do it that way for a long time. What happens? I fall short every time. I fall short every time. But friends, God's love for you His love for me allows us to experience salvation and redemption and new life and eternal life. The truth is God could have stopped at saving us and that would be the greatest news of all time. But you know what? God didn't stop there. The scripture says that God has brought us into his family. That's why the early church referred to each other as brothers and sisters because they realized that now they are a part of the same family, that you and I are a part of the family of Christ. So I want to go back to verse 7. Okay, it starts with the words, so that, having been justified by his grace. I want to read this together, though, okay? So look at the big screen. You see that phrase, Jesus Christ our Savior, comma, so that. We're going to pick it up right there, okay? Let's read this together. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God came away, God came to make a way for you to be connected to him, for me to be connected to him. I want to throw out the the following question. Just think about this for a second. Are there people you know who would be just fine living the rest of their lives without you in it? I can honestly say I bet there are a lot of people who wish they could live the rest of their lives without me as a part of it. There might be people who know you who could be happy living the rest of their lives without you in their lives. But you see the scripture saying, not God. Not God. God wants a relationship with you. He desires a relationship with you. In fact, not only that, but according to Psalms, God delights in you. How awesome is that? The the creator of the universe, he knows you by name and he desires to be in connection with you. The scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is important to remember. Jesus didn't die for a cleaned up version of yourself. He didn't die for a more mature version of yourself. The scripture says he died for the most vile, sinful version of yourself. And that's where God's grace comes in. God's grace offers us the gift of salvation. 
We often refer to that salvation as having the gift of eternal life, and that's certainly true, but so we often overlook one of the greatest aspects of that salvation. You see, the prize of the Christian life is not heaven when we die. Yeah, that's part of it. But the prize of the Christian life is not heaven when we die. It's Jesus right now. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about surrendering ourselves to God. That's radical. That's a radical message. Scripture says that you and I have been justified. We have been made right, not by our good works, not by being nice enough, but through God's grace. Maybe you've heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. There's a study about five years ago that asked Americans to name their favorite biblical passages, and God helps those who help themselves finished at number four on the top five countdown. It's interesting because nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Not only that, it's kind of the the contrary of the gospel. God helps those who help themselves. No, that's, that's not the message of Scripture at all. It's not anywhere in the Bible. But this is the truth, that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps you because you can't help yourself. Jesus speaks of a God who redeems us because of his love for us. Why don't you check out the big screen? Check out this video. And we talk about radical. Check this out. I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It's just foolish to think that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. That an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. In a world with no God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. Without God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need saved. And that's how I felt before Christ opened my eyes, changed my heart, and reversed my thinking. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine without God. Life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be, is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however that an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world, that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. It's foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. That no matter where you've been or what you've done, you are never beyond the outstretched arms of a loving God. 
Now, if you have your phones with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to take those out. I'm going to show two questions up on the big screens, and I want you to take a picture of it. Maybe sometime later today or later this week, you can pull out your phone, read these questions, maybe have a discussion over lunch or maybe a discussion over dinner, maybe with your, your family or your kids or your parents or your grandparents or maybe your neighbors, someone at work, whatever. How have you experienced God's grace lately? And then think about this quote. The prize of the Christian life is not heaven when we die. It's Jesus now. So I want you to take a picture of that. Let's remember that good stuff and focus on it as we go throughout the remainder of this week. God's grace, certainly radical stuff. There might be someone you know who, who could benefit from hearing that good news you can check out chapelroswell.com to, to watch the message again. Maybe direct your spouse or your kids or your neighbors to hear the good news, the radical news of God's grace. The sermons are also a great cure for insomnia, if you have that factor running through you. Next week, we'll continue the three-part series entitled Radical. God's grace is certainly radical. His love for you is totally radical. Friends, can I pray for you this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the amazing grace that you pour down upon us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May we have open eyes to see and open ears to hear and open hearts to understand the radical gift of your grace. Lord God, may those around us see lives that have been changed, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done and what your Holy Spirit continues to do. As we go through the remainder of this day and the, the beginning of a new week, may we cling to your promises and hope. Lord God, maybe, maybe we're hurting or maybe we're struggling in a certain area of our lives. But Father God, you hold us close to you and no matter how far we stray, we are never beyond the outstretched arms of your grace. And Lord God, you'll never lead us to a place where your grace is not already present and waiting for our arrival. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for first loving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.